Okay, let's, let's begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll get into it. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for this uh, wonderful day. We thank you for bringing us all here safe, and we pray that you would continue to bring the rest of your people um, to our church safely today in the fog. We thank you that we get to open up your word and hear truth from your word, truth about our position in you, and truth about our power in you. And I pray that you would give us um, lasting truth to change today. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So the theme of the day, if you didn't know, is uh, addressing a situation that's going on in Canada and really one that's going on um, in America, too. It's, it's addressing the issue of change. Is change possible for people who uh, have, you know, same-sex attraction or something like that? Is change possible? Should we pursue change or should we criminalize it? And just let everybody be the way they are to be. Now, as Christians, we believe that change is important because we believe that the gospel transforms you. But how does change work? I, I'm going to follow this theme of change today and talk about change. And the theme of our message is biblical change in an unbiblical world. And you can kind of see how we're hopefully going to show how embracing the message of the gospel actually brings true and lasting change into your life. I would say this, the gospel message is a message of powerful transformation and change. It's not the, the gospel message that changes you from those peripheral problems that you have, but it is the power of God to transform all of you, eventually perfectly, but now, uh, but even now that, that change has begun. Romans 1.16 is a really important verse on this topic. Romans 1.16 says this, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It's not to some people. It's not to special people. It's to everyone who believes. What is that power that is found in the gospel? It is justification. It is being declared righteous by faith alone in Christ Jesus alone. That is incredible power that you stand righteous before God. And if you continue to follow through the letter to the Romans, you also see it is the power of God in sanctification by the Holy Spirit. And that's kind of what we're going to talk about mainly today. We live in an unbiblical world, as I've said, and we live in a church, in a world, in a church world that is by and large embraced kind of worldly philosophies and, 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 and principles for how change happens. And I think that has had a, a damaging uh, damning effect on the, the the ability that the church has been able to give uh, to anybody uh, with sin. They, they are weaker. Um, they are weaker in their ability to pursue change because the church has been weaker based on how we have uh, taken in the worldly philosophies of our day. Um, I'm going to make an argument today. I'm going to make an argument this morning, kind of in two parts, but I'm going to give you the argument in just one really long, difficult, frustrating sentence that I could not make any shorter, and here it is. So the argument is, uh, oh boy, technology isn't a great, uh, the argument is the modern day church has been weak in its response to the LGBTQ plus movement for a long time now. Because it has been weak 
in regards to true gospel sanctification for an even longer time. There's a reason why the church has been so inadequate to address this issue and to give real hope in the gospel. It's because the church has been pretty shallow in, in what the gospel does and the sanctification that the gospel brings. So I, I'm not trying to um, say something outrageous. Uh, I'm, not trying to just, I'm not just saying something to be exciting. I want to kind of show you how, by and large, uh, typical evangelicals, evangelicalism today has kind of embraced a lot of worldly philosophies on change. So we're going to talk about myths of change, and then we're going to talk about true biblical change that produces lasting results. And, and really, this message is not really a message about uh, homosexuality. It's, it's a message about change. And it's a message about you, honestly. How does change happen in your life? And how does change not happen in your life? This is not just a message, a special message for a special group of people. This is a message for every single Christian who wants to live for the glory of God in their life. So that's really my goal. My, my goal is really not to talk about the issue at all. I want to talk about change because I feel like, as my argument will hopefully show, the weakness of the church's ability to address this issue has stemmed from a weakness it has had in the Bible and in how change happens. So we're going to look at a few myths of change. So I've read a little bit, and, and this is also things I've noticed in my life, myths about change that the church believes, that the world believes, and the church believes because the world believes, and the church is kind of borrowed from the world. Um, and so we're going to go through these myths of change. Most of these myths... All but one of these myths has, has nothing directly to do with homosexuality or any of that kind of things. It's just general myths on change, and you'll see that. Um, I do want to do something, though. I want to see where, where your guys' questions are on this issue. So if, uh, if you have a question about this movement at all or, or what our biblical response should be, or if you have a question about sanctification or change or anything like that, I want to know what your questions are. So I'm going to hand out these forms. Don't be confused. We're done with this. You don't have to do this. Uh, don't have to write your name even. They can be, they can be anonymous. But I just want, uh, while I speak, if you have a question that comes into your mind about sanctification, about homosexuality, about the LGBTQ movement. If you have any questions whatsoever, just write it down and, um, and, and I'll read it. And if I feel like there's something I really want to address, I'll either, either address it in a future message or, or I'll address it at the end if we have time. But let's start off by just going into uh, popular myths of change. These are myths that some people believe, maybe nobody believes, maybe everybody believes, maybe you secretly believe in your heart. Uh, we'll just go through them. I'm going to try to move, at, move through them fairly quickly. Um, we'll see what happens, though. Um, number one, number one, change is old-fashioned. Change is old-fashioned. There's some people that want to say, hey, you're on the wrong side of history here. We have evolved to a certain extent where we don't need to pursue change anymore. Who we are is perfect, and, and we shouldn't pursue a transformation. Change is old-fashioned. We, ironically, have so highly evolved that we no longer need to seek evolution, maybe in this worldview. Um, number two, uh, second myth about change is change is not necessary. Similar to old-fashioned, but I think there's a little bit of a, a nuance here. Change is not necessary. 
I think in the last century, probably a lot, but long before that as well, there has been this desire, this well-intentioned desire to explain the gospel in, in a way that offers the gospel as God's free grace, you know, justification by faith alone, and, and no works that you do. There's been a well-intentioned desire to proclaim a gospel that is free, and there's been a skittish desire to proclaim any sort of change. Now, there's been a desire to proclaim a gospel about a God who loves you so much that he does not require anything of you. Change is unnecessary. It could be thought maybe that God loved you so much just the way you are that he came and died for you just the way you are. Do you really need to change? That is obviously not an argument that I know that anybody makes, but I feel like that's an argument that they presume to make when they say that change is not necessary. But that is a philosophy out there that's subtle. Uh, Change is not necessary. Number three, change is impossible. I don't know if you've ever heard this myth. Um... Once again, I kind of addressed this early on, right? Uh, the gospel, uh, you know, being a Christian, it may solve some of your smaller problems, but when we're talking about huge problems in your life and in your mind and in your heart, change is impossible. Change is impossible. There's this phrase that, that used to be popular, and maybe you don't know what it means anymore, but the phrase is, you can't teach a dog New, or an old dog, new tricks, right? Once an old dog's an old dog, can't teach him any new tricks. And the same thing goes with me. I'm kind of this way. I've kind of been doing this for a while, and there's no way I can pursue sanctification. It is impossible for me. Or there's another argument that's a little bit more directed to our focus this morning. Hey, hey, I was born this way. You, you can't tell me to change. I was born this way. God made me this way. Therefore, I should stay this way. Now, by the way, and that is a popular argument, or was a popular argument, from the LGBTQ movement itself, right? I was born this way. How dare you tell me I should change? God made me this way. But uh, you should know, uh, they don't actually give that argument anymore. They don't believe that you were born that way. They don't, they don't believe in anything. They, they don't believe that you were, at, at one point... Um, you at one point ever are in a fixed gender. You, you are constantly moving around. You're constantly fluid. You're whatever gender you feel like you are in that moment. They do not believe that you were born that way because you can shift in how you feel, right? There, there is no, there are no two genders. There's just whatever you feel. So nobody actually believes that. Uh, so the church is really foolish if they try to um, believe that and embrace that idea about change being impossible. Um, number four, a myth about change is that change requires a mystical, magical, and monastic experience. You need to pursue a mystical or monastic experience. A mystical experience is, is simply saying that you are pursuing this experience with the Spirit of God that just is kind of mysterious and, and, and is disassociated from the Word of God. 
You're just kind of hoping that the Spirit of God comes into your life and, and transforms you, and it's kind of separate from the Word of God. It's separate from your will. It just kind of magically happens. That's mysticism. And you see that a lot, actually, in the church and how we think about the Holy Spirit. I just need to just kind of be transformed by the Spirit, and it doesn't involve His Word at all. It doesn't involve being filled with His Word at all. And a monastic experience refers to this mindset that people have always had about sanctification, which is, it's not me, it's you, right? My sin is not actually my fault, it's your fault. If I could just get out of this world, if I could just get out of this situation, if I could just get out of these circumstances, I would no longer have a problem with this particular sin. So I pursue a life as a monk. I try to get away from the world, and I try to hurt my body to pull it into subjection. That's asceticism. I try to escape, and then temptation goes out the window with that. And that may seem to work well until you're actually a monk and you realize, wow, my sin followed me here too. I am still here. Change is often thought of as mystical or monastic or magical. That is a a myth about change. Another myth about change is change is merely accidental. Um, God gives you no certainty God gives you no direction, God gives you no clarity, God gives you no truth for how you can pursue lasting change in your life. Matter of fact, you've got to just kind of just try all sorts of things and maybe it'll just accidentally happen one day, right? Change is accidental, there, there is no truth or outline that God gives you for how to pursue biblical change in your life. Now, let me just say this, I am convinced that the power of the gospel enables change. And it can begin change in your life even this very day. As you humble your heart to the truth of the gospel and to who Jesus is, as you humble your heart, you are already beginning to change. And the Word of God gives you a direction for change. It does. It's not accidental. If you listen to God's Word, you'll see there's a clear outline for change. Another myth, number six, Change looks the same in every Christian experience. I want to be careful there, because in one sense, change does follow a similar outline. But what, I'm, what I am fighting against here on this point is that change will always look exactly the same in every single Christian example. So, for example, right, you say this, well, Johnny, because that's a common name, Johnny changed overnight, and, and that's because he went to summer camp and he got saved so i just need to go to summer camp and get saved and then all of my problems will go away right or hey, hey susie susie actually hasn't really changed she hasn't been able to really stop sinning in that certain way so that, that must mean change is impossible in this certain kind of sin because because susie can't change right? It's not the same. There, there is truth. Once again, the gospel, I believe, gives you certain hope of change. You might not have perfection in this life, but you will have direction in this life. Measurable change that begins the moment you are saved and continues day by day in the Christian life as you pursue the means of grace. Another myth, though, let's keep moving. Another myth of change is change is quick, easy, and automatic. Similar to number six, change is quick, easy, and automatic, right? 
Many people are looking for a quick fix, like we talked about with Johnny, a book, a camp experience, a, a maybe a certain church. This church isn't working for me, so I'm going to try a different church. Right? It's, it should be quick, easy, automatic. It, it won't require much of me. It will be easy. Now, let me once again clarify. The, the Bible does give you hope of change, but it never says that change is easy. And many people point to someone's experience of failure in change, and they say, look at that, change is impossible. Uh, I never said change was easy. Change is, change is possible, but it's not cheap. Uh, so there's a myth there that change is quick, easy, and automatic. It might take you your whole life of killing sin to kill sin. Uh, number eight, change is just an issue of understanding right and wrong. Now, this is maybe a, a trap that we fall in sometimes when we're communicating the gospel. We think, if I can just convince my friend that they're in sin, they will change. Well, that's part of it, right? To, to communicate the gospel is to communicate a message of hope. But simply understanding information, uh, simply understanding that homosexuality is wrong, will, will that produce change in your life? No, you also need the power to change. You need, you need the discipleship to change. You need the direction of change. You need to follow the Word of God in obedience. You need, you need fellowship to change. You need all sorts of things to change. You can't just change by changing your mind. Now, changing your mind is very important, as I've always said. And, and changing your mind leads to a changed life. But, but we're not just shooting for knowledge, just intaking new information. There's more going on to true, true and lasting change. I could say it this way. Change isn't just knowledge. Change isn't just a personal insight about who you are. Uh, change isn't even a conviction of sin, a guilt of sin. Change isn't even a commitment to do things differently. What is change? Change is, in response to all of those things, changing. Was that too simple? Well, we'll talk about that more when we get to what change is. Let's go to another myth. Uh, this is my favorite. Inspired by the Incredibles. Uh, change is only for the supers. The super Christians. The special Christians. There are some Christians out there that have been given a special allotment of God's grace. And, and they can change. But change is not for me. God doesn't want me to change. I'm not special. I'm not super. That is a myth. God requires and desires change in every single one of his children. And he has given you the power of the gospel in Christ Jesus to change. Everyone. It is the power of salvation for, what does Romans 1.16 say? Everyone who believes. Uh, number 10, another myth of change. It requires professional help. My problem is beyond the insight and the authority and the power of Scripture to deal with. I need someone who is special. I need someone who is professional to help me. My, my condition isn't spiritual. It is medical. It is physical. Well, I got news for you. You are a soul and a body joined together. Everything that you suffer through physically is also a spiritual struggle. And the scripture gives you insight into how to understand the soul and how to sanctify 
the soul. And, and maybe you're saying, man, I want somebody professional. And that, that's true in one sense, right? You want somebody who has knowledge in the field of information that you need help on. The Bible is not a manual on brain surgery, but the Bible is a manual on soul surgery, soul transformation. And, and you shouldn't just seek maybe medical help for a spiritual issue, but that is a a delicate issue that you need to be thoughtful about and prayerful about. I think sometimes, though, as the, the Christian church, by and large, is swallowed into psychology and things, we assume, man, my mental problem can only be fixed by some mental expert. But your mental problem might just very well be a spiritual problem that you need to address with the truth of scripture that is a myth that it requires professional help in one sense number 11 um, change change must not cannot should not be in conflict with my self-identity with with who i feel i am change should not threaten my orientation or who I feel like I am. We live in a society, I would say, that idolizes identity, right? Every Disney movie I watch is telling me how wonderful I am and how much I just need to embrace the inner me and unlock me from me so me can be free to be me. But is that true? Is that according to Scripture? Is that actually true of you? And, and, and by the way, that philosophy leads to right antagonism towards anybody that would say, hey, you might be sinful. You might be sinful and unclean. Your, your, your person might be so saturated in sin that you need a new identity. You need a new person. You need to kill the old and put on the new. That's not a very popular message, because that goes against what I so desperately want to feel about me. It shouldn't, we think, be in conflict, but that is the very message of the gospel. I would, I would ask the person that thinks that, what is your view of sin? Are you a good person who just does bad things every once in a while? Right? How deeply does the power of the gospel go? It, it, it transforms the entire person. There are all these verses, like what you see in Colossians 3 there, right? Well, what, if, uh, what if Colossians 3.5, as Colossians 3.5 says, what if your identity is attached to something that is earthly, that is sinful, something that needs to be put off if you are in Christ? What if your identity is that? Ephesians 5.4, what if your personality is sinful, it's crude, it's filthy, it's foolish. What if that is your personality to be foolish? You need to put that off if you are in Christ. Ephesians 4.28, a favorite verse. What if you are ident- what if you identify as a thief? You need to put that off. First uh, Corinthians 6 9. What if you are a drunkard? Can you be a drunkard and a Christian at the same time? Not an obedient one, not a faithful one. When you are in Christ, you put on a new identity, Christ's identity. That informs and instructs how you live and how you think in this world. So it it will conflict with who you feel like you are. It will. Your whole identity is wrapped up in Christ, and that defines your life. That is your identity. You should put no other identity in between I am a Christian. 
There, there's no such thing as a gay Christian, just like there's no such thing as a drunk Christian or a thieving Christian. There is simply a Christian, a follower of Christ, who has identified as being in Christ and obedient to Christ. There's another myth for you. Here's a final one. And by the way, this is the only one, kind of, that's explicitly directed towards the homosexual movement. Change means you will experience a, or you'll just experience a heterosexual desire. That means you start, you start desiring the kind of people that uh, you are thinking you're supposed to be desiring according to a biblical worldview. Now, once again, want to be careful with this. What exactly am I saying here? Um, it's, it's this idea of sanctification, particularly in how it addresses the homosexual movement, that we should just help these people to be normal. And even in the way we talk about these people, we act as though they are different from us and they have different struggles with sin than we do, right? Because normalness is being straight or something like that. That's not normal. That's not Christ's design for you. Did you know that? There are actually some philosophies that the church, by and large, has embraced that, that come from this idea of, hey, we just need to get people desiring the right kind of, of people, and, and so they would celebrate and get excited about a man who is lusting after a woman. That's not what I'm after in sanctification. Is it, what, is it what you're after? I want to be a lustful person. Is that what it means to be a Christian? No, that's not what it means to be a Christian. You know what you're after? You're not after heterosexual desires necessarily. You're after holy desires. You're after a holy sexuality. You're after a, uh, an identity that is wrapped up in who you are in Christ and pursues the things that God has given you. That is what you're after. You're not just after just some sort of heterosexual desire. You're after holiness. You're after holiness given to you by the power of the Holy Spirit. So that is, that is the myths out there. If I could address a few, there's probably many more we could go into, but uh, I have 12 for you. Let's talk about truth. What is the truth of change? If that is what change is not, what is change? And this is where we get to Colossians chapter 3. Now, call me lazy because I just did Colossians 3 last week. Call me lazy, I don't care. But we are going to look at change from Colossians chapter 3, and there is a reason for this. First off, I think Colossians chapter 3 gives you a great outline for how actual change occurs in the Christian life. Uh, but it's interesting to me as well that it, it doesn't address necessarily homosexual desires or anything like that. And maybe you're thinking, ah, couldn't you have picked a better verse? Well, I've got news for you. There is no passage in the Bible that specifically addresses how a homosexual should pursue lasting and true change. What does that mean? It means... There's no special sinners out there. We all pursue lasting biblical change the same way. Right? This gives you a biblical outline for how sanctification works. Now, uh, now be careful there, because remember, the Bible assumes that those that struggle with homosexual desires will change. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 assumes that transformation happens. But how does it happen? It happens through the same ruts 
of sanctification that every Christian needs to pursue. And we see these outlined for us both in Ephesians 4 and 5 and Colossians 3. It's very significant in my mind that the New Testament repeats the process, right? It's very significant. Hey, this, this is what sanctification and true and lasting change looks like in your life. And we're going to see this from Colossians 3. Remember, though, that Colossians is written by Paul to exhort the Colossians to hold fast to the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ alone. They live in a culture that wants to embrace all sorts of philosophies and mysteries about how true spirituality is achieved. And Paul is saying to them, no, hold fast to Christ and the mystery of the gospel that you have received when you've received Christ. You have received Christ in you, chapter 127 tells you, the hope of glory, the transformational hope of glory. And this is where he goes here. And remember, remember what I was saying. This, this fits in with my argument. I would argue that the church has been weak in its response to how it addresses the homosexual issue because it has been weaker for a long, long time in how it talks about biblical change. So let's, let's see what the Word of God has for us here today. We'll try to get through it uh, fairly quickly. We'll see what happens. I'm going to give you essential. I'm going to give you five essential components for true and lasting change. And remember, I'm talking to you. I'm not talking to somebody else. I'm talking to you. These are the five essential components for true and lasting change. If we dig into them, maybe we could break them down even further, but this is how I've decided to organize them. You're going to see that uh, true essential change requires union with Christ, it requires genuine repentance, it requires actual change, it requires a living faith, and it requires a transformed purpose in your life, a transformed purpose. Let's, I'll go through those again, don't worry, that wasn't the sermon right there, obviously, I've never done that in my life. Here we go, we're going to go through them slowly. First essential component for change. Number one, it's foundational. True and lasting change requires union with Christ. Or to say it negatively, it won't happen outside of Jesus Christ and being in Christ Jesus alone. We've talked about this already in Colossians, right? Colossians 1.27 talks about the mystery that's been hidden but now is revealed in the gospel about how Christ is in his people, sanctifying them, giving them a hope for glory. This is an extraordinary truth in the gospel that Jesus Christ himself is intimately associated with his people. Where, where you are associated with him, and he is associated with you. Let's read the first four verses of Colossians 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now, don't be confused by the, the little word there, if. This is an argument that Greek writers would use, starting with an if, where they're assuming truth for the sake of an argument. Hey, if this is true, if this is true, if this is true, and it certainly is, then, then how should you live? 
So let's let's just show this really quick here. What what are the four? I'm going to have like don't be confused with my my points here, but this is five five uh, foundational P's for true change, right? This is this is the foundation of what it means to be united with Christ. The foundational P's here for true change. We're going to kind of organize these in like this this if statement format. Um, number one, if you are given the power of Christ. What he says there, you have been raised with Christ. Ephesians 1, 19 through 20 says, you have been given the same power to be changed that raised Christ Jesus from the dead. You have been raised with Christ. If you have been given the power of Christ. Secondly, if you have been given the privilege of Christ. See that word in the second half of verse 1? You have been seated at the right hand of God. You have been given a seat of majesty, even, and honor. You have been given ultimate privilege. You have been given ultimate resources to pursue change because you have been seated with Christ. If you've been given the power of Christ, if you've been given the privilege of Christ, if you are given the peace of Christ, we talked about this last week, verse 3, you have died and your life is hidden, it's secure, it's kept safe, it's, it's secure in Christ. No one will snatch you out of Christ's hand. And then finally, if you've been given the promise of Christ, notice all these ifs, ifs, ifs. If you've been given the promise of Christ, what's the promise of Christ? Verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear with him, right? You're not looking forward to a future of Christ appearing and saying, hey, I want you to go to purgatory for a while to get kind of cleaned up from my presence. When Christ comes, he is going to be ready to meet you. You will appear with him. This is the same kind of hope that 1 John 3, 2 and 3 talks about when it says, hey, we are transformed by hoping in Christ's coming. We have the promise of Christ. If all of these P's are true of you, then what ought to be your five, your preoccupation. Well, where should your mind be if all of this is true? If this is your spiritual reality in union with Christ, your mind should be set on these. Your thinking and your thought process should be formulated always going through these pillars, these foundational truths, right? Look at what he says there in verse 2. Set your mind on these things. Live like these things are true of you. Uh, Live like your position in Christ is home. You know what home is, right? Home, what happens in your home, shapes your entire life, right? You can be having a great life out there in school with your friends But if you are having uncertainty and difficulty at home, your whole life is having uncertainty and difficulty, right? If you have a family member that you love who is sick or dying or has died, your whole life is shaped by that reality, isn't it? Right? You can't go anywhere and not think about them. You're reminded of them everywhere you go because home is where your life flows out of, right? In a positive sense. 
your life, your home is in heaven, hidden with Christ and God, and your whole world is shaped by that reality. You can't see anything in this world without seeing it through the reality of where your home is. And that that is the foundation of true change, right? That I am secure and united in Christ, given the power of Christ, the privilege of Christ, the promise of Christ, the protection of Christ. I have all of these things. My entire life is shaped by this. I should seek after the things that are of heaven and not the things that are of earth, because this is true. And that's just the first essential component. Oh, boy. Number two, second essential component. We'll try to move fast. True and lasting change requires genuine repentance. Uh, this is a truth from your union with Christ, obviously, right? Your, your mindset is transformed by your union with Christ. And that results in change, in, in a repentance in your life that has an initial starting point. It's called conversion, and it has also an ongoing, continual, repeated nature to it, right? If, if this is my home, if this is where I belong, I live a life of repentance. I live a life of putting off earthly things, killing those things, because I don't belong here, I belong with Christ. What does genuine repentance look like? Look at what it says there in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from you. Do not lie to one another, seeing as you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator here there is not Greek and Jew circumcised and uncircumcised barbarian a Scythian slave free but Christ is all and in all what does true genuine repentance looks like well number one right it is an intense battle against sin You see it right there in verse 3. You put something to death. The word, the word that the Puritans always used was you mortify something. You, You keep it down on the floor. You keep it weak. You starve it. You are continually pursuing it as an enemy to weaken it, to bring about its continual weakness. The commands, by the way, in the New Testament... Assume, not that your problem with sin just evaporates when you become a Christian, but they seem to presume that your problems with sin begin when you become a Christian. That's when the warfare starts. That's when the real struggle starts. Before you're a Christian, you and sin, you're like buddy-buddy friends. But when you become a Christian, you put on a new identity. You are united with Christ, and war breaks out. Repentance is also... A repentance against outward sin. You turn from the outward manifestations of sin, outward things, sexual immorality, lying, 
deceit, all these kinds of things. But we also see here, a, a repentance is also an inward activity as well. You repent of the inward attitudes of the heart. Verse 5 told us this last week. You repent of evil desire. You repent of where sexual immorality comes from. That is covetousness, desiring something that is not yours, and idolatry. And this is my favorite one. Uh, uh, genuine repentance is this. It is it is a repentance that's motivated by something that is new and different. It, it is motivated in a new way. How, how is repentance motivated? Notice what he says there in verse 6, right? Uh, on these, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Present tense is coming. Paul is just saying this in kind of a vivid way. This is coming. This is imminent. This, this could be happening tomorrow. The wrath of God is coming. It's, it's kind of the same it's the same way of speaking about the future wrath of God, but it's speaking with this intensity. There, there's a difference, right? When I tell you, your dad will come home and talk to you about this. Oh, that's scary. But it's even more scary if I tell you, your dad's coming home. It's the same thing, but it's more intense, right? On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And notice who it is coming on. It is coming on, as some translations would pull it, the sons of disobedience, on, on sinners, on those who practice these things. But then, notice verse 7. Notice, what is your motivation in this? Is your motivation that, I don't want to experience the wrath of God if you are in Christ? No, that's not your motivation. Verse 7 actually tells you, In these you too once walked when you were living in them. The you there is emphatic. As a matter of fact, it's emphatic to kind of change the subject. It's as if Paul's saying, On these the wrath of God is coming. This wrath is coming, but remember that this wrath is not coming on you. It's coming, but it's not coming for you. And actually, this motivates the Christian, right? I want to be separated from sin. I want to be separated from anything that would displease the God in whom I've been reconciled to. I don't want to sin anymore. This is, this is bringing the wrath of God. And you stand in a new relationship to sin. A totally new trans- uh, transformed relationship to sin. And you don't want any piece of sin anymore. That's what motivates the Christian. Or I could say it this way. True and lasting change really requires a true conversion. You have been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. You have been transformed in your relationship entirely to sin. There is this amazing quote that I want to read for you. And I'm going to put it up on the board. And I'm... I can't spend too much time on it, but I'm going to put it in the slideshow and I'll send it out in the email if you want to read it. This is a quote by this man, William Arnott. This is amazing. Listen to this. The difference between an unconverted and a converted man is not that one has sins and the other has none, but that one takes part with his cherished sins against a dreaded God, And the other takes part with his reconciled God against his hated sins. Are you converted? Have you you taken part with your reconciled God against your hated sins? You need true, 
true conversion, true genuine repentance to be happening in your life every single day. The third essential component of change, true and lasting change, requires actual change. Seems so simple, but it's often forgotten. We think that repentance is all I need. But repentance is only part of true change. True change means putting on changed behavior, changed actions, changed attitudes, repenting from the old and putting on and pursuing the new. It is replacing, it is putting on. Both Ephesians 3, or sorry, Ephesians 4 and 5 and Colossians 3 talk about putting off and putting on. Because this is what true change is. Yes, you turn away, you fling off the old garments of sin that you can't stand because they have the stench of sin and and the, the knowledge of God's wrath and displeasure on them, but that's not all you do to pursue change. You also fill in the void that is left there with new attitudes that are shaped by Christ Jesus and the gospel. That is true change. Verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. You you can see it here, right? True change requires uh, gospel information, right? You, You are changed and you're living in a new life that is shaped by the truth of the gospel. And, and true change also requires something called a vivified faith. A faith that thinks differently, a mind that thinks differently. And this brings us to our fourth essential component. It requires a living faith. A living faith, a faith that is alive. True change, lasting victory requires a vivified faith which holds fast to God because of what God has said. Because it has filled its heart and its mind with God's truth. Verse 2, once again, set your mind. Your mind fuels your faith. It fuels your worldview. It fuels your life. And in verse 10, we talked about this. It's a renewed knowledge. It's 2 Corinthians 4.16. A renewal that's happening day by day. And verse uh, chapter 1, uh, 9 through 11 talked about this, right? Filling, filling your mind with the will of God. And that's in parallel to being filled with the power of God. Have you ever thought about this? When you fill your mind and your heart and you fill your faith with the word of God, you are filling your faith with the strength of God to work in your life for true and lasting change. Uh, There's two major components of change, right? It is putting off, it is killing, it is mortifying, but it is also vivifying faith. Uh, Feeding your soul with the truth of God and bringing your faith into this life. Vivify, another Puritan word, means to enliven, it means to bring something to life, it means to fuel, it means to fill, it means to empower, it means to feast and and bring to a point of life. Are you filling up and enlivening your life of faith through the knowledge of God's Word? Here's another quote from um, Stuart Scott. This is a really good book. It's called Killing Sin Habits, and I got that William Arndt quote from that, and I also got this one. It goes like this. Uh, Faith is 
the life-dominating conviction and practice that all God has for me through obedience to his revealed word is better by far than anything Satan can offer me through my selfishness and sin. That's what faith is. It is everything God has given me through his word and in obedience to his word is better by far than anything sin and Satan and the world can promise me today. That is faith made alive, made alive in you. That is faith that is living. It requires this. True change requires a continual living faith. Final component for true and lasting change. Final component. True and lasting change requires a transformed purpose. I got a shock for you that won't be very shocking. Your mind is leading you somewhere. A living faith is leading you somewhere. But what's the goal? What's the goal of your life as a Christian? Is it just information? No, that information is leading you somewhere. Leading you to a purpose that God has for you. Is it transformation? Well, kind of a no. It's not just transformation either. What is the purpose of your transformation, the ultimate purpose, and the true evidence of true and lasting change in your life is that you have been transformed to be a worshiping person. Your transformation is oriented not just on the transformation in and of itself, but it's oriented and pointed at the praise that you will bring to God. That is your purpose. That is your goal in all of your life. Sin, specifically sexual sin, is primarily an issue of worship. It's an issue of your heart idolizing something and coveting something that God has forbidden. And the only way to truly change is to actually change and go in a different direction. You do this by thanksgiving, right? Thanksgiving is simply saying, all that God has given is more than I deserve. That's what a heart of thanksgiving does. And you also do this, you worship through faith. Faith is simply this, all that God has given me is all that I need to praise his name. Thanksgiving and faith that is alive And and we notice this too, right? Paul says, put on worship. Paul says in verse 16 and 17, change means you're putting on singing in your life. And you are contributing to the singing in other people's lives. You are fueling your faith and the faith of others around you for worship. This is, of course, impossible without your union with Christ. This is impossible if you continue to pursue idols. And this requires you to be filled with the word of Christ, as it says in verse 16. But this is where true change needs to go. This is the transformed purpose that really brings about true and lasting change. You start becoming a true worshiper of God. And this is where I got that quote that I read you on Thursday. Any area where we struggle with sin and unrighteousness is an area of coldness in our soul. It's a lack of worship that is leading us to sin. 
Have you changed? Have you truly been transformed by the gospel? Because this is the hope of the message that you hold in your hands in the very word of God. And this is the hopeful message that you bring to the people around you in your life. And the best way to know how to share that message is to live it out first in your own life. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, we thank you for your love and your faithfulness and the hope that you bring through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we pray that you use these truths to bring our faith to a new living level of transformation and for the purpose of your praise. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.